Well, good morning, Grace family. We hope that you all had a meaningful Christmas with your families and whoever you were with. Well, if you can believe it, this is our last Sunday of 2020. And if your sentiment has been like mine, you might feel like, good riddance. Let's put this year behind us. The uncertainty, the political turmoil, the racial unrest, the anxiety, the virus. It's been a year of change in unprecedented proportions, at least in my lifetime. And many of us are itching to close the book on a very hard year. Yet, the more I reflect on this year, a bit more thoughtfully, my feelings have been evolving about this year. This past week, I've had the opportunity to gather with good friends in a few different circles and contexts, including our staff here at Grace. In these different groups, we've asked ourselves the question, what has been some of the big takeaways from this year for us personally? And I think there is a collective recognition that in more normal circumstances, we have the tendency to take a lot of things for granted. Failing to recognize God's way of blessing us in the day in and day out of a typical year. How many beautiful moments, precious encounters, laughing, great thoughts, good food, and important lessons we may have missed, or at least we didn't appreciate as much as we should have. And I think it's so easy to let the annoyances and frustrations and disappointments overshadow all the good and important things that God did for us this year. Because the truth is, God has been working. He's been changing us, and He's changed our circumstances a bit to accomplish His purposes. And I know for many of us, He's been surprising us in some beautiful ways, showing Himself to us in all kinds of ways. Many of us have been awed by His goodness, by His provision in these times. We've experienced His care in how He's sustained us and in how He's been teaching us. And I think it's really important to stop and think about all that and be amazed by all that we have learned about our God this year. And for those of us who are clinging to the idea that when the ball drops on December 31st, and I'm not even sure a ball is dropping this year, that, that maybe things will be different in the new year. But I think the reality is that the same issues that plagued us in 2020 are following us into a new year. There will still be plenty of challenges, some of which we haven't even imagined yet. But as we've pointed out before, all the future unknowns to us are not unknown to God, nor are they troubling to Him. And as always, His mercies will be new every day, and He will always be up to something good and beautiful. So let's end this year with hearts that are tuned to His grace and mercy. There is so much to be grateful for, even on the hardest days. Will we see it? Or will we shove the year out the door and refuse to lift praise to the one who is giving us the very breath in our lungs each moment? So now, wherever you are, let's use that breath to lift our voices together to worship our good and holy God. And one other thing, 
I'm happy to say that Daniel Gaiman, one of our elders here at Grace, will be closing out our year with his teaching today. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from Daniel as he has been perceiving the need to speak into what it means to be part of the body of Christ, the church. Something, as we all know, that has been sort of morphing for us this year in one way or another. So it will be good to be once again grounded in the truths of what it means to be the church, especially these days. So let's worship together. I hear the Savior say, your strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me your all and Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Yeah. 
So Daniel Gaiman will be sharing with us today from Luke 7, 36 through 50. So join along with me. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we get to look at a passage that has some surprising turns of events in it. Another title for this sermon might have been Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which I understand is an ancient reference to a movie made in 1967. But those of you who get that will get that, and everybody else can ask me later. Any event, there's a dinner party that has a surprise visitor, and we're going to look at the reactions of those people who are already there. So we're in Luke 7, and I'm going to start in verse 36 and kind of work through that story. Um, but I'm going to break it up into parts by who the key players are, what the key turns of action are, in order to draw to a conclusion at the end. So for starters, it's necessary to explain the setting a little bit. Simon, the host, we find that out later when Jesus addresses him by name, is a Pharisee. Now, Pharisee is a devoutly religious man, a law keeper. Um, and yet, in the Gospels, throughout most of the Gospels, they're generally referred to negatively, especially by Jesus, and especially in the Gospel of Luke. While they kept the fine points of the law, they missed the bigger issues, 
like love for neighbor, empathy, and compassion almost completely. And Jesus let them know that. They were essentially an elite group of established religious leaders who wielded authority over others. Now, I found this quote um, in Jesus Calling, of all places, in which Jesus is speaking to us, referring to this type of behavior. And he says, Men tend to multiply duties in their observation of religion. This practice enables them to give me money, time, and work without yielding up to me what I desire the most, their hearts. Rules can be observed mechanically. Once they become habitual, they can be followed with minimal effort and almost no thought. These habit-forming rules provide a false sense of security, lulling the soul into a comatose position. I just love that. He wasn't, she wasn't speaking of uh, a Pharisee in that context. She was speaking of a phenomenon that happens in the church today. Some people might almost call that group the frozen chosen. I'll let you think about that for a while. So anyway, Simon threw a party. Um, he was a fairly well-to-do guy, being a Pharisee, and he invited Jesus. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, the Lord would probably be a novel addition to the dinner event and would intrigue and amuse his guests. Simon could also demonstrate his wokeness by inviting this radical upstart teacher into his home and sharing with some of his closest friends. Now, just in case you're wondering how this works, gatherings of this nature were not unusual in first century um, uh, Israel. They were typically staged by the wealthy and they had large open houses. Think about the houses you see when there's a film on the Mediterranean or something from Turkey. Or imagine even when Peter is warming himself at the courtyard of the high priest's house. They're very open so people could wander in and out. And apparently even at a dinner organized like this, uninvited people could pop in. That was the case with the woman that we looked at in the scripture and she showed up because she knew Jesus would be there, it tells us in verse 37. Now, there's some confusion in some sources about who this woman is, and so I'm going to do my best to clarify. Uh, she's not Mary, the sister of Lazarus, although there's a stunningly similar story about Mary, sister of Lazarus, in John 12. Come back to that in a minute. Nor is she Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. In fact, we don't know her name, um, but it's often supposed that she is one of those other two women, and I contend that she is not. How is she identified? She's identified as having led a sinful life. Tradition holds that she was a prostitute, uh, and I think there's a good enough evidence to support that conclusion. That intro, in its own, sets up contrast and tension in the rest of the story. Okay, let's talk about the woman at the dinner. In this setting, in the big house where people could wander in, the guests would gather around a large table and they'd be laying on sofas with their heads toward the food and their feet pointing in the other direction. This woman, uninvited, breaks into the crowd. Uh, as I said before, it's likely she has already heard Jesus speaking in public somewhere. Same reason Simon invited him. She came to see him. Get closer to him? Why is she there? Because she knew he was there and she wants to accomplish something. And we'll see what that is in a moment. So she goes from the periphery of the crowd right up to the dinner table, works her way straight to Jesus. And I'm thinking maybe she was already crying on the way there. Uh, sobbing more likely to, I have to quiz you with this. 
Imagine the last time you cried enough tears to meaningfully wet someone's feet. That's a lot of crying. My buddy Adam might call that ugly crying. Um, so I think this was already happening as she approached him, welling up in her eyes, getting ready to spill over. In this context of the dinner, regardless of which course they were on, she would have been impossible to ignore. She took her hair out of its braids or whatever arrangement she had, and she let it down, and she used it to wipe Jesus' feet after wetting them with her own tears. She kissed them over and over again with feeling, smothering his feet with kisses. Smothering his feet with kisses. You want another picture of this? When the prodigal son returns and the father runs out to meet him on the way up to the house, what does he do? He wraps his arms around his son and smothers him in kisses. It's the same word in the two contexts to give you a little idea about the energy and enthusiasm here. And then lastly, she poured perfume on his feet. So, all the other senses were already engaged. Smell is now engaged as well, as the aroma of the perfume wafts through the space and grabs everyone's attention. Let's talk about Simon. Simon watches this, and he doesn't directly confront Jesus. He just sits in silent judgment. Now, Jesus, of course, can read his thoughts. Um, and, but one thing to point out is the Pharisees were extremely critical of Jesus for hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. You can see that in chapter 5, verse 30, and also just two verses hence in 734. Jesus clarified to them at the, in that chapter 5 that it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance in Luke 5, 31. So, Jesus is obviously not uncomfortable in this situation. Simon, on the other hand, can't tolerate uh, or understand how Jesus is allowing this slutty woman to touch his feet at a public gathering. Well, Jesus has a story to tell, and uh, he answered Simon, which I love. I mean, Simon hadn't spoken out loud, but Jesus answers him anyway. He says, in the story, two individuals racked up an enormous, insurmountable debt to the same lender. Now, in the story, one of them owed a hundred times as much as the other person. A hundred times. That's a big difference. But he forgave them both, right? We don't get a lot of detail, but apparently he did. Jesus infers that to be forgiven for such a debt would generate an emotional response in a person. Love springing from knowing that one had received something undeserved. So, that's the premise he makes to Simon. Which of them do you think will love him more? Simon was sitting in silent judgment on Jesus' behavior. Jesus calls him out directly. And I love this. Jesus presses Simon a little bit um, to make a judgment about his conclusion. And Simon says, I suppose, the one who owed him more. You can, he's saying this grudgingly through clenched teeth. My mother used to say that when she would give me permission for something when she didn't really want to, and it was always accompanied by an eye roll and a heavy sigh. I picture that's coming from Simon. Jesus acknowledges that he judged correctly, but then he moves in to take him apart and watch how he does this. 
Jesus delivers his analysis of the evening to Simon. Do you see this woman? Jesus asked. I, I love that. Of course he saw her. He was looking at her. There was not an eye in the room that was not focused on this woman to see where it was going to go next. But why does Jesus ask that? Why stick in a rhetorical question? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I believe Jesus saw her. She wasn't just an image. He understood who she was. He had uh, empathy and compassion toward her. It's very much like uh, Hagar in Genesis 6 when she's running away from Sarah, who names God, the God who sees me. That's the point that Jesus is making in asking the rhetorical question. He saw the truth about Simon and the woman. Simon failed at the most basic gestures of hospitality. And Jesus points this out by the repetitive, you did not, you did not, you did not, an inventory of the number of ways that he missed an opportunity to love and even greet the Lord on walking into his house. So it gives us that in verses 44 to 46. She did every one, amplifying the gestures to outrageous proportions. So Jesus concluded, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. The next line is an indictment of the Pharisee's behavior. But he who has, begin, who has been forgiven little loves little or maybe none at all. Imagine feeling you don't need to be forgiven. What kind of love is that going to generate? Jesus repeats himself, saying at one time wasn't enough. In 48, he says this again, this time speaking directly to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Oh, incidentally, as he's telling the parable, he's not looking at Simon. He's looking at the woman and talking to Simon. So at the end of it, when he says, do you see this woman? It even underscores that point even more emphatically. All right. So what happens then? The guests start talking under their breath to one another, right? It's like, who's this guy uh, who can forgive sins? Not only did Jesus accept the amazing gesture from this despised sinner who he was accused of hanging around with anyway, but then he pronounced her sins forgiven. It almost appears from the text that her sins were given, forgiven because she loved much, but that's not what the Lord is saying. Her lavish, outrageous, courageous, non-self-conscious act of humble devotion was evidence she understood she had been forgiven. She knew she was a sinner. Simon was certain he wasn't and wouldn't associate with people who were. Her overwhelming emotion and outpouring of love came from knowing what her liability to God was. She was the debtor who owed a hundred times as much. So let me observe something about this situation. I hope I've painted a picture and you can picture yourself in that room. You too would have been staring at the woman, staring at Jesus, smelling the perfume, trying to cut the tension with a knife, if you will. But here's some observations that I think can't be argued. What this woman did was wildly inappropriate in the setting. What she did was wildly disruptive and finally, what she did was unmistakably sensual. She loved Jesus according to the only language she knew. She lavished attention on Jesus' physical body because that's what made sense to her. Jesus knows who she is and what she's done. 
Yet it makes complete sense to him that she would pour out her affection on him in loving response to the great burden he had lifted from her. He concludes with her by affirming his salvation, your faith has saved you, and sending her off in peace, a peace that only he can give, that is the result of understanding that you have been forgiven and what you've been forgiven for. Love is the propellant of this story. Love with a tremendous amount of humility. Mentioned before in John chapter 12, Mary, sister of Lazarus, in a really similar kind of condition, pours perfume on Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair. It's stunningly similar. However, in there, there is no reporting of tears or kissing, but it is equally a gesture of great love, humility, and service. In John 13, the tables turn and Jesus is doing the foot washing, humbling himself and taking the role of a servant to make a point to his disciples. Now, I want you to think about this one for a moment. We've examined uh, one story from Luke and John. A very similar story happens with Mary. Many of the disciples were probably at Simon's house to see the first foot washing. On the second one, Judas has a cow because he thinks the money should have been spent on something else. The perfume, it's suggested, would have been worth a year's wages for a laborer. A year's wages. And he was just going to miss the money. However, John, in explaining to us what was going on in the situation with Jesus taking the foot washing role, says this. This is in John 13, 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus Christ showing you the full extent of his love? Uh, what does that even mean? Um, we know that Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 15, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends in 1513. So full extent must have a more nuanced meaning, meaning but it is still a superlative. To me, it's the, he showed them the be-all and end-all in a way that um, dying for his friends is the height and showing them the full extent of his love through an act of service is the breadth of Jesus' love. It is impossible to outserve Jesus. Now, where do we go from there? In John 13 through 15, Jesus talks about love a lot. I mean, over and over and over, leading to the very simple conclusion, this is my command, love each other. Hard to make that any simpler than it sounds in John 15, 17. We looked at two extraordinary examples of uh, expressions of love characterized by humility, service, and courage. We had the woman and we had Jesus. So what's rolling around in our head right now? Which character in the story do you sympathize with more powerfully? Maybe you consider yourself a person who doesn't really have a lot to be forgiven for, right? Maybe you do. Uh, maybe you have a lot to be forgiven for, both then and now. So the question is, how can you tell? Are you loving Jesus a lot or just a little? Great question is, how do you love his body today, which is what she did, 
when he is not physically available? The answer is right here. And I wish I were with a group of you. I would say that. The answer is right there. Look around you. We are his body. When we assemble as a gathering, we are the temple in which God dwells by his spirit. So we are his body. Therefore, when you love on one another, the brothers and sisters, that's loving on Jesus, on his body in an abstract sense, but it is still fulfilling his command and enriching his body to strengthen it. In these times that we've been separated and have been very difficult and we try to figure out things and we connect on Zoom, uh, a lot of people are starving for connection um, and in the church too. So my encouragement is, as you think about these words and thinking about loving him a little or loving him a lot, think about ways that you can love a brother and sister, maybe not in the way you're used to. And in do so, doing so, you will be loving the body of Jesus. And I just want to end with this encouragement from uh, John, a much more mature John later in his career. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Some of you probably memorized that in a song form. So, as we get ready to launch into the new year, be aware of the body of Jesus. Be aware of your own heart. Are you going to love him a little or are you going to love him a lot?
Well, we hope you have been encouraged today by the message, and we encourage you to engage the discussion questions immediately following this. Let me just end with this a benediction from 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Amen.